You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, For those of you who weren't online this week or missed SNL this weekend, a guy, a try guy, who is also a wife guy, had an affair with a co-worker who is not a guy. And the discovery of this affair, which featured in a supporting role, Harry Styles, a guy who tried skirts and got accused of queer baiting, the discovery of this affair that the try guy had led the other three try guys to kick the wife guy try guy out of the try guys which the three remaining Try Guys discussed in a five and a half minute long, very self-important, very self-serious video they posted to their wildly successful YouTube channel where they have nearly 8 million subscribers. For those of you who don't know what a Try Guy is, I will summarize. The Try Guys are four guys who used to work at BuzzFeed together who would try things and post videos of them trying things to YouTube. They would try wearing thongs, eating bugs, they tried labor pains, they tried it all. Eugene Lee Yang, Zach Kornfeld, Keith Harbersberger, and Ned Fulmer got internet famous, left BuzzFeed, and built their own little media empire, well, not so little media empire, where they continued to try things. And for those of you who don't know what a wife guy is, I'm gonna let Wikipedia do the summarizing here. A wife guy, is a man whose fame is owed to the content he posts to social media about his wife. Wikipedia goes on, the New York Times compared wife guys to incels who define themselves by their inability to find a partner in that a wife guy defines himself by having found one and expects to be congratulated for it. Okay, the first thing I read about the Try Guys controversy last week was on Vulture, New York Magazine's pop culture website, where I read this. In a five and a half minute video titled, What Happened? The remaining guys, Yang, Kornfeld, and Harbersberger, spoke about the timeline behind the departure of resident wife guy, Ned Fulmer, who has admitted to a, quote, non-consensual workplace relationship, close quote. A what now? Fulmer admitted to a non-consensual workplace relationship? And yes, those three words, non-consensual workplace relationship, were in quotes. So yeah, I could see why the other Try Guys had to fire Fulmer. A non-consensual workplace relationship isn't a relationship. If it involves sex, it's rape. If it involves forced labor, it's slavery. I read that and literally thought Fulmer had admitted to raping a staffer. It wasn't until five long-ass paragraphs later that Vulture got around to quoting from Ned Fulmer's actual statement, which he posted to Instagram, a statement that had the letters N and O and N in it, but not in that order. Family should have always been my priority, read Fulmer's statement in part, but I lost focus and had a consensual workplace relationship. Yeah, there is a big difference between a consensual workplace relationship, like an affair with a coworker, and a non-consensual workplace relationship, which would involve sexual abuse or exploitation or assault or enslavement. That errant non was on Vulture for a full day before someone did something about it. Full disclosure, someone at Vulture saw me tweeting, wait, what, huh, about that non and decided they might want to correct the post before they got sued by a newly non-employed try guy. 
In an actually pretty funny skit on SNL this weekend, Ehel Woden played a befuddled CNN anchor who couldn't quite understand what the big, big deal here was. A co-worker and friend had an affair. Two co-workers had an affair with each other. And okay, Fulmer probably should have been fired for it, but what was the big fucking deal with this self-important video? People have affairs with and without their co-workers all the time. Now, for the record, Fulmer probably should have been fired. He was having an affair with someone who worked under him. And his actions, which were reckless and indiscreet, put the whole company, their little media empire, at risk of bad press, which it's now getting in piles, and potential lawsuits. And while I will sometimes sign off on an affair when an affair is the least worst option for all involved, I'm not prepared to sign off on this one. Although I do recognize that telling people what they shouldn't do and can't do makes doing that thing sometimes more alluring, people really shouldn't have sex with people who work for them. Fucking your sub is one thing, fucking your subordinate is another. Still, not entirely trusting my own judgment here, I asked my followers on Twitter to give me a gut check by explaining the Try Guy controversy to me in a single tweet. He tried, got caught, got fired, replied Andrew Genzer. Millennials and Gen Z shocked that wife guy online persona does not match actual personality or behavior, reacts accordingly to societal expectations of strict monogamy, replied Guppel's blog. Ugh, some YouTube guy had an affair with one of their producers and got outed by a fan who photographed them making out in public. The guy was a pretty big wife guy, so everyone is both scandalized and smug about it. The other Try Guys are inordinately upset about all this, posted Matt Gump, to which Tasha Velacroy responded, their friend lied to them and had an affair with an employee of their jointly owned company. Their careers and brand are impacted. The friendship is over. I barely know who the Try Guys are, and even I can tell they're not inordinately, but rather rightly upset. Okay, we'll give Tasha the last word there, but... Where it got weird for me was the other three Try Guys reacted like Fulmer had cheated on them and every single one of their millions of followers and fans. They were justifiably upset, but seemed to be taking it weirdly personally, like they were the spouses, not the business partners here. I mean, they did turn around and make a big deal of doing the YouTube channel media empire equivalent of someone deleting their ex's photos from their Instagram account not only by removing Fulmer from upcoming Try Guy videos, but by editing him out of the Try Guy video archives. In two weeks, in the time that elapsed between Fulmer being spotted by a Try Guys fan making out with someone who wasn't his wife at a Harry Styles concert, to the other Try Guys bringing in outside help to conduct a full investigation, and then firing Fulmer, Fulmer went from Try Guys circa 2022 to Unperson a la 1984 airbrushed out of Try Guy history like some member of the Politburo who ran afoul of Joseph Stalin in the 1930s. The one person who hasn't deleted Fulmer, at least not yet, is the one person with the most cause to be furious with Fulmer. That would be his wife and the mother of his children, Ariel Fulmer, who was quoted in Vulture saying that the couple was working on working things out. Trying to sum it all up, Rebecca Alter at Vulture writes, don't make wife guy your whole personality. To which I would add, probably not better, if you don't want to be made fun of on SNL, 
probably not better to make being the guys who fired a guy for having a consensual, if problematic, workplace affair your whole personality either. Ned Fulmer will be back. He won't be able to sell himself as a devoted wife guy anymore. He can no longer pretend to be the perfect husband anymore. But he will probably be able to sell a redemption narrative at some point, assuming he manages to redeem himself in the eyes of his wife, if not his former business partners. If not that, then a sex addict narrative if he decides to go the Tiger Woods route. Or, most likely, a getting through a messy public divorce and finding new love narrative. Because you know what they say, if your first marriage does not succeed, try, try again. Okay, coming up on today's show, on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum, Jessica Poffs joins me for a What You Got. She's a lecturer and sex researcher at Gothenburg University in Sweden, and she's here to talk about her new study on squirting. How do women who can do it feel about it? Superpower or super awkward? Also for Magnum Subs this week, we've got a new sex and politics for you coming out on Thursday with author and activist Cory Doctorow. And in Savage Love, my column this week, exploring BDSM with a partner who's a survivor of sexual violence and other control and kink-related questions. Read Savage Love at savage.love slash savagelove right after you listen to this week's Savage Lovecast. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. I have a question about dom-sub relationships with money. Recently, a sub contacted me through an app and asked how they could be of service to me via some financial means. And I thought it was a hoax. I thought it was fake until I left them my Venmo and $100 showed up. Then they asked for some feedback on how much pleasure I got from doing this and used sir when addressing me. So my question is, and kind of the context is, Dan, I grew up with not a lot of money. So this whole entire situation of just giving out money to someone else is very confusing to me. How can I be a good dom in this situation or a sir? What are the ethical practices, if any? I've asked them about their monthly living expenses and their wages. And those are things that I'm highly conscious of. So that's why I wanted to know it. And I was wondering, is there a sweet spot or a certain percentage of someone's earnings to ask for? Because they want to make this a regular thing. And lastly, how do you show appreciation for something like this? Are there good words to use or is there something more that I'm missing? I want to do this well so both of us benefit. There are some fin subs out there who want nothing in exchange. They just want to send money. They want to pay tribute to someone that they've found online who's a fin dom, who's hung out their shingle on Twitter and posted pictures of them flipping off the camera, posted pictures of their feet. Those are the two cliches. Uh, Seeking fin subs. And other fin subs want to shower money on somebody who didn't see it coming, who didn't ask for it, and want to initiate a kind of dom-sub relationship. Sounds like you stumbled onto the ladder. There are plenty of people out there, plenty of people out there advertising online, seeking fin subs. And this guy who is a fin sub vibed with you. Maybe he's already paying a lot of money or has paid money to self-identified, self-promoting fin doms. And it's just about you and your look and finding you attractive. Or he had bad experiences with guys who were doing fin dom 
who were just avaricious or greedy or in it for the wrong reasons. And there are, of course, wonderful right reasons to be into FinDom FinSub. There are FinDoms out there who are conscientious and ethical, who only take what uh, is offered, don't demand more, uh, don't demand more than a, a FinSub can pay, and who recognize, even though the DS dynamic is a part of the game here, that this is a, a transactional relationship, that the sub is also getting something out of it too for their money. And what the sub wants out of that transactional relationship is really particular to each and every sub. This guy who asked you if he could send you money, if he could be your fin sub, what kind of fin sub does he want to be? Only he knows the answer to that question. We have one hint right now in that he initiated calling you sir in that follow-up message after he sent you that $100. And so obviously some kind of sir boy or master slave role play is part of what's in it for him. You could step outside of the dom sub dynamic and have a conversation with him and say, what is it that you want? How is it that you want me to treat you? Some people who are subs find that kind of conversation where you're negotiating as equals about how the dynamic is going to work that it sort of undermines the dynamic or ruins the dynamic and would rather just, you know, drop hints and gradually move in the direction of what it is that they want. And so, yeah, if you don't want to step out of it and have a, Hey, let's just like zoom out to 30,000 feet here and have a conversation. How is it you want me to treat you? You can, you know, respond by calling him boy when he sends you that money because he's called you sir. And then maybe he'll drop other hints about how he wants to be treated. If he wants, you know, to be paying you for your time and attention, which is what fin subs do. If what he wants is degradation for you to put him down, for you to talk dirty to him, for you to be demanding and obnoxious, I think he'll drop other hints that lead you in that direction. You know, there was a case many years ago of uh, financial dominant, a woman who was in a Finn's dom sub relationship with a man and she convinced him or ordered him to sign over his condominium to her. And this went to court and there was a case and it was a whole thing. That's clearly taking it too far, transferring property. But, you know, $50 here, $100 there from someone who can spare it. They don't have children or financial dependents who are starving. They're not living on ramen. They're not in danger of being... Uh, evicted, you can ethically enjoy the money and provide goods for services. You know, you are, even though you're getting the money, even though you are quote unquote, the dominant, you are the provider. And you know, the sub there has a lot of control. He can at any moment, stop sending you money, start sending money elsewhere, or just stop spending money like this. And so figure out what he wants. And if you enjoy getting that money, if you need that money, uh, if you just like having that money, if you like this dynamic, if you enjoy this game and this dance, enjoy it. But don't ask for more than he offers, even if part of the role play is him wanting you to demand from him. Demand what you know is reasonable within the framework of what he's offered. Push the envelope 
Don't demand the condo. Hello, Dan. I'm a gay male in California. Been in a relationship for about 15 years. And something happened the other day. I can't kind of get it out of my head. I came home from work and just chilling, you know, and my partner starts switching the moves on me and he starts to initiate sex. And I really wasn't feeling it, but I kind of went along with it. I am always trying to encourage him to be more spontaneous. I didn't want to kind of spoil it for them, I guess. But is that common in long-term couples, you know, to just sort of go along with it and kind of get yourself there by whatever means you can and just doing it for the other person, even if you're not really feeling it that much? Doing it for the other person, even if you're not feeling it very much, is so common in committed long-term relationships that it has a name. It's called maintenance sex. Sometimes you put out, not because you're feeling it, but because your partner is horny and they're making the moves and you don't want to tell them no. It's not like you're having sex that isn't consensual. It's not like you're having sex against your will. You're just having sex for a different reason. Not necessarily at that moment in the context of a long-term relationship that's not abusive. There's no coercion going on. You're having sex not to just, or not to at that moment, please yourself, but please your partner. You want your partner to be happy. You know, there's a lot of maintenance sex that goes on in all long-term committed relationships, open or not. Maintenance sex tends to characterize a lot of committed, strictly monogamous relationships. When you are your partner's only option, when you want to be your partner's only sexual outlet. Well, you have a responsibility then to meet your partner's reasonable sexual needs. That doesn't mean a la the Duggars. Remember the Duggars? It doesn't mean you can never say no to your husband or your wife or your NB spouse. You can say no, but there may be times when they're feeling it. You're not necessarily feeling it, but you're going to go through the motions, not telegraph to them that you're not feeling it. Uh, Okay, yes, we can have sex. I don't want to, but you want to. Here we go. Nobody's going to want to have sex with someone who's behaving that way. That's basically rejecting them. But you may like, okay, fake it a little bit. Like, And every once in a while when you're having maintenance sex, when you are going through the motions because your partner was horny and you weren't horny and you wanted them to be happy and you wanted to meet their needs, even if you felt responsible uh, to meet their needs. You turned them down last time or a couple of days ago, and now you're going to do it. You may find you catch a groove. Sometimes you start out having what feels like maintenance sex, doing it for the other person, and you get horny. Some people get horny and then want to have sex. Some people start having sex with one of those people and then get horny. So there are times when you're rewarded you know, not with, you know, the intimacy, the connection, the sex, um, the pleasure you gave, that can be its own reward. But sometimes you're rewarded when you start going through the motions with sex that turns into something more for you than just going through the motions. When it becomes sex that you enjoy too, and you're happy at the end that you said yes to it, not just for the pleasure you provided your partner, but for the amazing sexual experience that you just had too, that you would not have had had your partner not initiated and had you not agreed, you know, silently in your own head, not out loud to your partner to go through the motions for them because you love them and care about them and want them to be happy.
Hi, mostly straight guy here with a question about monkeypox vaccines, specifically whether my partner and I should get them. I'm mostly straight, she's bi, we sometimes go to sex parties and have sex with women. Now, there are men who have sex with men at these parties, and our partners may be having sex with those men who have sex with men, so we were wondering, should we get vaccinated, or is this too many jumps to really make that necessary? I know there are limited amounts of monkeypox vaccines, and I don't want to take any from people who might need them more. I've looked at the CDC website and I can't quite seem to get a handle on whether my partner and I should be getting vaccinated or if we should wait so other people can. The people most at risk of monkeypox are gay and bi men and men who have sex with men who do not identify as gay and bi. That said, there are gay men out there in monogamous relationships, successfully monogamous relationships, not gay men who define monogamy as we only play together, but two gay men who are in a sexually exclusive, long-term committed relationship, those guys are at very low risk uh, of contracting monkeypox. Those guys may not need to get the monkeypox vaccine, just as those guys may not need to get on PrEP. There are straight people like yourself, not just imaginary straight people can be conjectured, but straight people like you who are arguably at greater risk of contracting monkeypox than those guys out there in sexually exclusive, long-term committed, monogamous relationships. You are, I think, monkeypox risk adjacent. You going to sex parties. Sex parties seem to be one of the venues where monkeypox has really spread and spread and spread. And while you don't have sex with men, your partner has sex with women who have sex with men, some of whom are bisexual and maybe having sex with other men who have sex with men who are at risk of monkeypox and bringing it into that sex party environment. So I don't think you should have to wait much longer than you already have to go get the monkeypox vaccine if it's available in your area. You should be sensitive to demand contact whatever health department or authority in your area is making monkeypox vaccines available. Um, if there's a surplus of them, if there's monkeypox vaccines sitting on the shelf, particularly now that they're able to spread them farther, it used to be they're, they're getting five or 10 doses now out of a single vial instead of one or two, um, there may be more available in your area now with the new monkeypox vaccination regimen, which we've gone into with Dr. Carlton on the show. I'm not going to go into it again now. And so if you call your health department and there's monkeypox shots available, I, I think you with a clear conscience, given your risk profile, can go get that shot. If you call and there isn't enough to go around for the people at greatest risk right now, men who have sex with men, gay and bi men, black and brown, gay and bi men in particular, you might want to hang back just a little bit longer. The cavalry is on its way. More and more monkeypox vaccines are being ordered, are in the pipeline. More will become available in time. But if there are some available, if there are enough available right now where you are, yeah, I don't think you would be jumping the line. I don't think you and your girlfriend going and getting the monkeypox vaccine maybe instead of, you know, the gay monogamous couple that doesn't really need it. I don't think you'd be doing anything wrong or unethical. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a early 30s cishet male getting a single subject teaching credential in California. 
and uh, I've been substituting during that time. I've come across twice now an issue that I'm sure I'll have to deal with the rest of my teaching career, and that is one student calling another student a faggot. In the moment, I shut it down fast. I show that I'm upset with that kind of language, that it's not tolerated, and I try to lecture them on just how hateful and how much negative power a word like that holds. But I can't help but wonder if there's a better way to be going about it. Uh, and I was wondering if you had any advice or thoughts on how you would help a student to realize just how hateful and how much words like that impact other kids. Let's focus on what you can accomplish. You can't accomplish for, I guess we're going to focus first on what you can't accomplish. You're not going to be able to convince or communicate to some kid who is using anti-gay hate speech like that in a school setting, the full horror and harm of their actions in that moment, the damage that word can do, the damage the the casual use of anti-gay hate speech can do to the openly queer kids in your school and also to the currently closeted queer kids in your school, some of whom may be friends of the kids who are using those terms and feel unsafe and uh, unable to come out. Some of them may even be the kids who are using those words and are hiding behind them and deflecting attention away from their own sexuality by being the most anti-gay hateful little shits in the school. What's important, what you can do in that moment when you say, hey, we don't use words like that. We don't use that word. We don't use that word in that way. It's unkind and hateful and harmful. If you say that, you know what you can do in that moment? You can reach the closeted kid. You can reach the openly gay kid who is in class having to listen to that shit and doesn't feel like they have any allies, doesn't feel like anyone's going to stick up for them and doesn't feel safe enough or powerful enough to stick up for themselves at that moment, you get in their ears that you can't accomplish. And that is so important. What you don't want to set for yourself as a standard is, you know, pushing back so successfully that the kid that you're telling not to use the word faggot has an epiphany and goes forth and sins no more because you're going to always fail if that's your standard. What you can always succeed at but it's harder to see the success is reaching the closeted kid in the class with the message that the world isn't entirely made up of anti-gay bigots and straight people or queer people who are afraid or unable, not empowered to stand up against that kind of bigotry, that they do have support, that there is a future coming for them if they're the closeted gay kid where they will be surrounded by new sets of peers new authority figures who respect them. And it can be hard to see that success because that isn't going to be manifested in front of you. You know, the kids who are throwing the faggot around are probably going to keep throwing faggot around and you're going to have to push back again and again. But that kid who heard you, the authority figure, the teacher, the substitute teacher in the room, try to shut that down. It's going to be a success in that kid's head and you're not going to see it right away. The achievement in that moment is going to not be manifested in a perceivable way for you because the closeted kid who is pretending not to hear what's going on, who's sitting on the other side of the room, 
he or she or they are going to hear what you said and it is going to matter to them, but not in a way that they can show you in that moment. But no, you have to know that you are making a difference for those kids when you push back, for those closeted queer kids, when you push back against the openly bigoted kids in your school. Hi, Dan Nancy in the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 30-year-old bi woman living on the West Coast, and I have a question about the ethics of doing something nice unethically, I suppose. A little bit of background, my uh, husband and I have been together for almost 10 years, friends for quite quite a long time, and he's always had a really hard time with sharing how he feels, especially if he is feeling in any way negative toward me, very conflict avoidant, and he just has a really hard time verbalizing if he's upset with something that I've done or hurt in some way, and I know a lot of it has to do with some childhood trauma that he is currently working on in therapy, um, as well as the fact that he is autistic, and a couple of weeks ago, I found in the trash, um, it's kind of just sitting at the very top of the trash can, it had been torn into a few uh, pretty large pieces a piece of paper that very clearly had stuff about me written on it. Um, I saw some kind of keywords that that kind of like clued me in to take a little bit closer of a look. Um, And so I I pulled the pieces out and it was a a pro and con list um, about me as a partner. Um, And it wasn't something I took too personally. I could tell it was his way of kind of like processing. We've been having some issues in the relationship and, you know, he's seeking therapy to kind of try and work through some of it. Um, But basically the the short of the long is that on the the con list was really focused around him believing that I hate things that he loves. Friends of his that he is really close with who I'm not particularly fond of. Um, He's really into video games, kind of not my thing. Um, He's hypersexual. I'm hyposexual. We're kind of working out an arrangement around that. I guess what I'm wondering is I have, since finding that, kind of tried to find these subtle ways to just work on those items. Suggested that one of the friends in question maybe come up for a visit in a little bit now that our guest room is ready. Trying to show a little bit more interest in his video games. I I know it doesn't feel good to feel like the person that you love hates all the things that you love. And even though he just, for whatever reason, didn't feel comfortable bringing up this concern to me, I still want to like address it, even though he didn't bring it up. And so I guess I'm wondering, is it ethical to try to improve the way that you are in a relationship based on feedback that your partner never actually intended you to see? Are you sure he never intended you to see that torn up pro and con list? Doesn't sound like he went to a great deal of effort to destroy it or conceal it from you. It sounds to me like he might have left it there, not torn up into tiny pieces, torn up into large legible pieces at the top of the trash, hoping that you might find it. Even if he didn't intend for you to find it, I think you could go to him and say, hey, I I found this. And you know what? Feedback received, you are right. I'm going to make a little bit more of an effort to be gracious to and get to know and find some things about your friends that I like and enjoy. And I want you to spend more time with them and try to find something about the video games that interest me too. You could take that tack or you could just take the feedback, how you got it and make these changes that it already sounds like you plan to make inviting his friend or friends to come stay now that the guest room is set up and being a little bit more, 
you know, cultivating a little bit more of an interest in his video games. My husband plays a lot of video games. He's interested in video games. I now know a lot about Pokemon that I don't really need to know as someone who doesn't play Pokemon. My husband also is obsessed with and has an encyclopedic, I'm not going to say that word correctly, and has a vast, we'll just go with vast, so many fewer syllables, a vast knowledge of classical music. I get dragged to the symphony a lot. I now appreciate and enjoy a lot of the classical music that I hear. I even went to a concert on my own, unaccompanied by my husband, because there was something that I wanted to hear. He knows what not to take me to. Don't go to modern music. Don't like the sound of a piano falling down the stairs. But certain kinds of classical music, I enjoy. And I now know something about because my husband's interested in it and I'm interested in the things he's interested in. You can take the same tack on video games. And not just with husbands. My husband's boyfriend, obsessed with the Real Housewives of absolutely everywhere. We have a lot of long conversations at the dinner table about the Real Housewives of absolutely everywhere. And yeah, if I can have those conversations and not just endure them, but I've come to enjoy them, you can talk with your husband about his video games and his other interests. Seems to me that the bigger challenge here, first of all, like let's just dispose of the question that you asked. Can you ethically act on the feedback that you received, this bank shot feedback that was left where you were likely to find it, but wasn't delivered to you directly and make these changes ethically without sending up a flare about making these changes, without letting your husband know message that he sent, received. Yeah, ethically, you can absolutely do that. You know, if a friend came to you and shared something with you that your husband confided in her, that she really felt that you needed to know, you could act on that information without having to let your husband know that your friend perhaps violated the confidence that your husband took in her. Maybe your husband, you know, swore to secrecy, said not to say something, and she said something and asked you not to say that she said because she didn't want to damage her relationship with your husband but wanted to see your relationship with your husband improve. Could you ethically act on that intelligence without letting your husband know how you got your hands on it? Yeah, absolutely. Same in this instance. The bigger problem, the one I hope you're working on with your therapist would seem to me the problem that trips up a lot of other couples, not feedback and how it's received, but a hyposexual person, a very sexual person, a person with a high libido, being in a relationship with a hyposexual person, somebody with a very low libido. If you guys, if that's not the problem that you're writing me about or calling me about, if you guys have found the fix for that, yeah, that's huge. If you guys were able to craft the accommodations, work things out that allow you to be in this relationship and be happy and for both of you to feel fulfilled and neither of you to feel neglected or shamed or shut down or coerced or bullied, yeah, you're in a really good spot. You're golden. You've fixed the problem that would destroy most relationships and your husband may have found a way to let you know about other things in the relationship that are bothering him without having to be direct. There may be more messages in a bottle for you or torn up pro and con lists in the trash for you in the future. And if your husband is doing this intentionally, I think also in the future, a day will come when you'll be able to acknowledge that this is how you received that message and the two of you will be able to laugh about it together. Hi, Dan. I feel like I'm in an 
odd position. So I've been with my boyfriend a little over two and a half years, and we were starting to really get into the having a kid conversation. He has had two kids from a previous marriage, and I want to have kids of my own. I had known he's been on the fence of this, and really he's always told me he could go either way and just needed more time to kind of figure it out. But at this point in our relationship, I was like, we either need to move on together or apart. So we ended up breaking up for a couple weeks as we were figuring this out. And he realized he didn't want to lose me and he was willing to have kids. So we got back together. It was a tough couple weeks, but I was super happy to be with him and take the next steps. And I truly believed that this was something he wanted to do with me. So about a week after that, he gets a call from a woman that he had slept with during those two weeks that we had broken up. And she's pregnant. He was pretty devastated. He broke up with me again as he knew he wouldn't be able to have two kids in this situation and needed to just figure it out on his own. The whole thing was pretty awful and the breakup was rough and I feel like I had a life plan with this guy and it was just completely ripped away from me. So fast forward to now, which has been two months since we broke up and either this woman had a miscarriage or um, she lied about the whole thing, but she's not pregnant anymore and he wanted to know if I'd be willing to talk and if we could get back together. So I feel like it's been a pretty interesting roller coaster over the last three or four months and I just feel like I can't make this shit up but I love him and I miss him and I now feel like we kind of broke up for no reason but it's also been a shitty couple months and I've had some perspective on my relationship with him so I've been having some hard conversations with him about concerns I had in our relationship prior but I guess my question is am I crazy to get back together with this guy after all this I know why he broke up with me and I don't blame him because I don't think I could have handled being with him while he had a kid with another woman when I wanted to have a kid. But I also feel like we were happy and moving forward before this. So should I? Am I crazy? So this guy who once upon a time broke up with you because you wanted more kids and he didn't want any more kids, those few weeks when he was sleeping with somebody else, What birth control method were they using? Did the birth control method that they were using fail? Did a condom break? Was he having unprotected sex with somebody, even though he didn't want any more kids and had just left a woman because he didn't want any more kids? Was he having unprotected sex with some stranger, basically, on her word that she was using birth control or was on birth control? Inquiring minds want to know, I think that would factor into my decision where I in your shoes, because one of the things I hammer away at all the time, one of the things I think we look for when we're looking for a partner, a long-term intimate partner, particularly when we're looking to co-parent with somebody is good judgment. What kind of judgment was this guy using during his dumb spring of the couple of weeks that you guys were broken up? If you love him and want to get back together with him, And, you know, if he was lied to, not that he shouldn't have been taking responsibility for where he was putting his own semen when he began to date this other woman when you guys were temporarily broken up. If you want to, you know, if he was just being stupid and recognizes that, you know, life is messy and shit happens, but sometimes shit works out. And this could be one of those instances. If the only reason he broke up with you was because he couldn't give you the children that you wanted to have while also becoming a new parent 
with a woman that he barely knew, having another child with a woman he barely knew, as that would be way too complicated, right? He's already got kids by somebody else, having two infants by two different women, one of whom he loves and wants to be with, one of whom he barely knows and either shouldn't have trusted when she said she was on birth control or uh, should have been proactively using some form of birth control, you know, a condom himself when he was having sex with her. He obviously behaved recklessly. Was he reeling from the breakup? You know, sometimes we behave recklessly and do self-destructive things, all of us. Was that what he was doing here? Is that a pattern with him? Was it out of character? Is it something that if you do get back together with him and have kids, that you're not gonna have to be worried about every moment for the rest of your life? And, oh my God, crucially, and at this moment, while you're thinking about getting back together with him and you're not yet back together with him, is he not putting his dick in anybody else right now, particularly that woman that he left you for? And I'm not that woman and she's the evil baddie in this. I know nothing about her and I'm not laying blame on her, but that particular, that woman in the sense of that particular woman that, you know, his interactions with led to the breakup that you're considering unbreaking up. Is he not sticking his dick in her right now? Or if he is sticking his dick in her right now, is it in a condom? I think you have a right to know and you should for your own safety Ask that question, put that question to him. If he really wants to get back together with you, marry you, have children with you, the very least he could do right now to prove to you that he's serious is to abstain from sticking his dick in a condom or not in a condom in anyone else for the time being until you make up your mind. And yeah, in answer to your question, I don't think you'd be crazy to get back together with this guy. The course of true love ne'er did run smooth. If this was a lapse in judgment, if it's not something that he routinely does, if it was uncharacteristic of him to fuck his way into this mess, then yeah, you could get back together with him. And the kids you have with him, man, what a hilarious origin story you'll be able to share with them one day. Hey, Dan. So I have a question for you. With this recent release of the new Netflix Stommer series, I know that you have some personal connections to a victim of Dahmer's. And I was wondering if you feel comfortable and if possible, if you can maybe expand on how Dahmer's actions affected the gay community in Illinois at that time and Chicago and any insights. I would really love to know more about the gay community and how, you know, how Dahmer's actions affected the victims and just anything you'd like to add. I just, you know, the series really focuses on Dahmer, but I would like to know more about the victims. Jeffrey Dahmer killed a friend of mine. His name was Anthony Hughes. He was this deaf gay black guy that I met at Rod's, which was a bar in Madison, Wisconsin. Jeffrey Dahmer killed men and boys, mostly men of color, mostly black men, in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, not in Illinois. The serial killer who preyed on men and boys in Illinois when I was younger uh, was John Wayne Gacy. Harder to make a kind of Ryan Murphy sensationalistic TV series about John Wayne Gacy because unlike Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy was not attractive in a conventional 
sense. It's horrible that we're sitting here parsing the relative attractiveness, the relative hotness of serial killers, but that seems to be something that this series has forced on us. I want to talk about Tony for a second. Tony was deaf. Tony was an extrovert. Tony was always sitting at the bar at Rod's. He was incredibly friendly. I have said many times on this show and everywhere that I can possibly say that I am an introvert. I am shy. I would go to Rod's. I would play pinball. I would have a beer. I would pretty much keep to myself. And Tony wasn't having it. He was very outgoing. He was very chatty. And he started talking to me. He could lip read really well. I actually had studied sign language in college. At college, I'd taken a year of American sign language and I still had some and I could fingerspell. And so we were able to chat and we became bar buddies. I don't want to overestimate the intensity of our friendship or my connection to him. We hung out together at Rod's. We were friendly. We were always happy to see each other. And, you know, we didn't have apps then. We didn't have gay bars and bathhouses in our pockets. We spent more time in gay bars for a lot of us, you know, in the 90s and 80s. Gay bars were extensions of our living rooms. They were places where we felt safe. And in a college town like Madison, where a lot of kids were in dorms or apartments or frats, gay bars were, were for some of us, the only place, or for you know some college students, the only places we felt safe, which is part of what made what Dahmer did so insidious. He went to a particular gay bar in Milwaukee, picked men up, took them home, murdered them, and got away with it for a very long time because the police did not care. The society did not value gay men broadly, gay men of color in particular. And so Tony disappeared one day and nobody knew where he went. And this was pre-internet, pre-Facebook, pre-texting, pre it being pretty easy to keep in touch with everybody. And his family was very panicked and flyers went up and nobody knew where he was. And a rumor went around that he had decided he was sick of everybody which and was angry and moved to Florida, which just didn't seem like Tony because he was extremely friendly and extremely extroverted and very into his friends and his social network. And it just seemed unlike him to cut ties and disappear. And I found out what had happened to Tony one day when I was walking through the airport in Milwaukee. Uh, I was in ACT UP at the time. I was on my way to an ACT UP meeting in New York uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, and was in the Milwaukee airport and out of the corner of my eye saw Tony's face on the cover of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in a newspaper box. And that's when I found out. That's when we all found out what had happened to Tony and so many other young gay black men that Jeffrey Dahmer had murdered and tortured. It's too horrible to think about. And for me personally, too horrible to watch a television show about. I tried to watch the first episode of Dahmer and got about 20 minutes into it and had to turn the TV off. I haven't watched the whole thing. I love Niecy Nash who plays one of Dahmer's neighbors in the building, one of the people uh, around Dahmer who tried to raise the alarm uh, about what was going on and were ignored because they were poor people of color, working class people of color, and the authorities did not give a shit. It's almost as if in 
Dahmer's case, as in John Wayne Gacy's case, but particularly in Dahmer's case, you see in a microcosm, in a small way, in a particular way, the indifference, you know, the macro indifference that the culture communicated, you know, that it didn't value the lives of gay people or people of color when it came to HIV AIDS. People were content to do nothing, to turn a blind eye, uh, because the people dying didn't matter, weren't valued. And you saw that you, in Dahmer's case, that the people that, kind of like HIV, the people that Dahmer was picking off and murdering weren't valued enough for the police to investigate, to take it seriously, for the authorities to take it seriously and to do something about it. I don't have any opinions about the quality of the show. I'm following the controversy around it. I'm going to probably not watch the rest of it. It was too painful to watch what I did. Yeah, it was a very weird thing. Cause when I came out when I was 12, 13 years old, uh, the John Wayne Gacy, when I, when I came out, when I began to realize I was gay, 12, 13 years old, the John Wayne Gacy story, the horror of John Wayne Gacy was breaking in Chicago was all over the newspapers. And then when I was a young adult out gay man, the horror of HIV AIDS fully broken over me, us, my community, the queer community. And then the horror of Jeffrey Dahmer was visited particularly upon the gay community in Milwaukee, Madison, gay men, black gay men. You know, we looked at John Wayne Gacy and we said, I wouldn't have gone home with him. I hate to say this, but it was true of the time that people looked at Dahmer and thought I would have gone home with him. And indeed my friend Tony did go home with him. And it breaks my heart to this day. Tony was a wonderful guy. He deserves to be remembered. I remember him. I think of him often. And maybe instead of watching this dumb show, I'm going to think about Tony and remember Tony and maybe brush up on my ASL skills that made it possible for me and Tony to become friends in the first place. I've allowed my ASL to really atrophy over the years and I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me for this What You Got, Jessica Pops, researcher and lecturer at Gothenburg University in Sweden. She's currently doing research and writing a book on female ejaculation, a.k.a. also known as squirting. Hey, Jessica Pops, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So what do you got? What's your latest research? Yeah, so in my current study, I wanted to find out how women feel about and experience squirting. So I interviewed women who were between 23 and 69 years old here in Sweden, who had all experienced squirting, either regularly or occasionally. And in the findings, uh, which are also published, you can find them online, I could see that the experience of squirting varied from sensations of like extraordinary pleasure, pride and amazedness, with the expulsion of fluid being described as a visible powerful and feminist statement of sexual response 
and also a feeling of assessing a sexual superpower. Uh But also to squirting being considered an embarrassing and disturbing event, like with sensations of discomfort and feelings of shame. And then there were also those who described an indifference to it. So did anything correlate with the feelings of shame or discomfort? There's been some research recently in the last few years that kind of located the, you know, where the ejaculate, female ejaculation comes from. You know, there's a lot of talk of in in the 90s and aughts about a female prostate, some mysterious system that we didn't understand. And it's been sort of definitively proved that it comes from the bladder, which is where urine comes from. Are the women who are discomforted by their ability to ejaculate women who are likelier to be obsessing about whether it's pee or not? Definitely. I mean, this is something that I saw in almost all interviews. Women talked about this. Uh, usually they talked about it as a way of explaining it to me that they themselves are convinced that it's not urine. It looks differently it smells differently uh some said like that they had even like you know tasted it and they said that it has this sweeter taste to it and also that it's it doesn't leave any stains but still it is there and it definitely creates embarrassment and for some shame and for some really a reason why they would rather not uh, have it and i think it's complicated because yeah the research recent research has focused on that and been able to explain that it seems there is a liquid created in the bladder when we get sexually aroused. And some women seems to have this expulsion of the liquid, but still it's not, it cannot be like equivalent to, to urine, but there are urinary markers in this, but I mean, there are urinary markers in sweat as well. Some of the women that I've spoken to over the years, their problem with it was it's so much Unlike male ejaculate, where it's just a teaspoon or two, or maybe, you know, an eighth of a cup if a guy is amazing, um, when it comes to female ejaculate, there is quite a lot. And just logistically, it can create inconveniences around soaked sheets, soaked bedding, stained mattresses. And I've heard from women who, some of them worked for years to learn how to ejaculate, to, to hit themselves in just the right way where they were capable of female ejaculation and then couldn't turn it off. Yeah, I heard that too. And this, some women explain it like they felt that the body has cracked the code and now there were no return. And I think there are two things here, like both this feeling of wanting to control it. And for some, uh, this creates also a bit of an uncomfortable feeling around it. They, they cannot control it. For some, it seems to be really connected to a certain type of stimuli or also that they feel capable of controlling it. But for others, it's like out of their hands. It happens when they get like excited or or in combination with an orgasm, it happens. And as you say, the amount of liquid is really a concern for some women. This differs in different cultures for sure. But for example, in, in the Swedish context here, I could see that for women, this created a discomfort because both of the wish to not prepare for sex, uh, because it is easy to protect the sheets if, if that's the problem. It's easy to to do things about it uh, and just embrace this amount of liquid. But it, it was about this discomfort in like preparation and also some explain it as like it turns into a project because it gets so wet. And again, here, I also think it's because 
when we talk about women's sexual response, we hardly ever talk about, first of all, like squirting. It's not part of like the the sexual response that we that we talk about. And so it is kind of uncomfortable for women to to get so so wet or like to create this massive fluid because it it's kind of um, is a norm breaker. It's certainly not anything we ever see represented in popular culture. You know, we see a lot of women climaxing in film and television, often in very unrealistic ways, simultaneous orgasms, only vaginal penetration, women climaxing. I don't think I've ever seen, you know, non-pornographic film where the woman who's climaxing, you know, in the in the story is an ejaculator. No, there was a, it, it was in in a Swedish uh, series it was recently there but then again it was pictured as something like extraordinary and she wanted to have it and it was again pictured as like this super orgasm which is also not true to the stories I've got from women that it may happen with or without an orgasm and again also why it's not pictured in media it, I mean it's really common in, in porn and that also creates this connotations to squirting that it seems as like norm excessive and so but it's still I mean it's just a physical response to sexual stimulation and there's nothing norm excessive about it and even though we know it comes from the bladder it's not urine the composition of it isn't I did you know you say to women you've interviewed it doesn't smell the same it's not the same viscosity it doesn't for women who've tasted their own urine and done comparisons, it doesn't taste like urine, I guess. Yeah, um, I don't but, think they had tasted their own urine, but but just to like, you know, make sure. Yeah, that, and then, yeah, describe that. I mean, you can tell what urine is going to taste like pretty much from its smell. Like the sense of smell is hugely involved in the sense of taste. So I'm sure women could taste their ejaculate and say it doesn't taste like urine without having to taste their urine. They've smelled <laughs> their urine. But it's not, it's not pee. There's some mysterious process going on during arousal for some women where fluid gathers in the bladder. Maybe fluid gathers in the bladder during arousal for all women. And in some women, that fluid is expelled. But we don't know exactly what's going on. It's not sort of ramped up, you know, filtration. It's not sort of ramped up urine gathering because it's not the same chemical composition as urine, whatever's coming out of the bladder during female ejaculation. Yeah, exactly. And I really hope there will be more research being able to explain like what's happening and maybe there's some glands involved that we don't know about yet. And uh, Because the study of female sexual anatomy is really still in its infancy. Yeah. I mean, that's almost provoking that it's so under-researched. And also, I, as a researcher and with a, also a gender perspective to it, I think it's a bit provoking as well that the re there's really li limited research that has been done. And to me, it seems that the research has more been wanting to know whether it's urine or not. Mm. Not describing what's happening, understanding like the bigger picture around it. And that's why we are kind of stuck in this. And then the re research that comes out creates headlines where they right? Like, oh, it's just urine. And I mean, these women who experience squirting or female ejaculation, they are not peeing themselves. Can we talk about men for a second? I'm a man and we haven't been talking about men enough. And sometimes men get uncomfortable if the topic, you know, drifts too far from us. I've seen a lot of men come. Uh, I've never 
except in one case, ever met a man who felt at all conflicted about ejaculation, about semen. But I did meet one guy who felt that, you know, he was kind of grossed out by semen, grossed out by his own semen. He wished he could have orgasms without ejaculating. He wanted to be able to experience orgasm in the way most women do and the way female orgasms are represented in the media, which is that, you know, the sensations, the orgasmic contractions, the waves of pleasure and no mess. Yeah. Like a dry orgasm. Like a dry orgasm, which, you know, some men do have, particularly men later in life or a guy who's masturbated 10 times in a row in a single day may have a dry orgasm. But, and, you know, I think if a woman is properly, properly, I think if a woman is aroused and has an orgasm, that woman is not going in most cases, unless she um, isn't producing vaginal lubrication and and is supplementing with lube, is not going to have a dry orgasm. She's going to be wet. But you don't see a lot of men out there who are conflicted about ejaculation. And I somehow found the one in the pile. (laughs) Yeah. And and then again, I think from that perspective, it gets kind of interesting how squirting and female ejaculation has so much connotations to it because when a man ejaculates it comes through the urethra and well Mm -hmm. apparently when a woman ejaculates it comes through the urethra but still this ejaculation is seems to be of course so much more like complicated and causing a lot of sensations of Yeah, and stigmatize it. You know, I've heard people say it comes out of the same hole that pee does, therefore it's pee when they're talking about female ejaculate. ejaculate. Mm -hmm. And by that standard, semen, although it looks very different than urine, comes out of the same hole, Mm -hmm. the urethra, uh, as pee, and yet nobody runs around saying that's pee or that's gross because of its association with the urethra. Yeah, and that's that's of course because we can explain exactly what happens with the male ejaculate, but not still with the female. I mean, we know that the skin's glands are probably involved uh, and they are around the u- urethra. So this more milky type of ejaculate probably comes from there. But what I also find interesting is this wish to separate these two in the scientific research. It was in 2011 where they suggested that we should look at it as two different things because the biochemical compositions differ. So there's all either this like more milky kind of ejaculate that they even state is like the real ejaculation. And then this more watery like that is higher in quantity, which they are then like finding more questionable. But these two researchers that suggested that we should look at it at different things, which has created this like... Hierarchy. Both a hierarchy, but also this like differentiation between these two. These guys, when they did it, they had one study object and that person first had the more more watery-like ejaculate and then directly after the milky one. So it was the same study object that had at the same time these two expulsions of fluid. So how can we separate them? How can we start saying that it's two different things when it apparently happened at the same time? So yeah, my hypothesis is that I think they are connected and some women maybe have more of the watery-like and maybe more liquid being created in the bladder that is expulsed 
and others maybe have less of it and that's why it seems more like milky like but maybe it's the same thing so where can people who want to read your most recent work find it well you are so welcome to follow me on instagram at jessica paths or go to the website called theorgasmrevolution.com there you can find links to my studies and follow the research that we're doing or simply by googling the article that is published it's called a sexual superpower or shame women's diverging experiences of squirting slash female ejaculation in sweden jessica pops researcher lecturer at gothenburg university in sweden thank you so much for jumping on the phone and sharing what you got thank you Hi, Dan. Early 30s, gay guy, East Coast here. I have a problem reaching orgasm with a partner. Masturbation's always been a lot easier for me to reach orgasm. With a partner, it's always a little bit more difficult. Um, I've tried toys, I've tried mutual masturbation, I've tried topping and bottoming, I've tried being in an open relationship. I'm currently in a monogamous relationship with the best sex partner I've ever had. Our sex is amazing. Whether I come or not, sometimes I do. It's not a problem all the time. Sometimes I don't. And I have to say, you know, it's not happening today. It feels like I'm getting anxiety for having sex because of this pressure to to come. Like I said, it's not always a partner. And and right now it's uh, with my current partner, it's been great. I've always attributed this problem to the fact that I grew up in a very religious household. And I didn't lose my virginity till I was 24. So for the first 10 years of my sexual life... I was alone. There was no one watching. Do you have any tips for me? Anything I can do to um, to help come with a partner? For the first 10 years that you were sexually active, you were solo sexually active. There was, and I'm quoting you here, no one watching. Is that the issue for you? Is it you get out of your head, you get distracted from your dick, you have a problem coming because you're watching your partner watch you? As you build toward orgasm, well, there's a simple solution for that, which is a blindfold. Don't let your partner watch you. And you say you tried toys, mutual masturbation, topping, bottoming, open relationships. If you can jack off and make yourself come when you're alone, can you jack off and make yourself come when you're with a partner? Sometimes when people say, we're doing mutual masturbation and I still can't come, Uh, Mutual masturbation doesn't mean I'm jacking you off, you're jacking me off necessarily. It can mean that. It can also mean we are together masturbating, each of us touching ourselves, maybe passing the batons back and forth. Maybe you're masturbating him for a while and he's masturbating you and then you go back to yourself. If the standard you've set for yourself to climax with a partner is, look, ma, no hands or none of my hands orgasms, where you're topping but you're never stroking yourself, or you're getting a blowjob but never stroking yourself. The one thing that you know reliably works when you're alone, I think you need to unselfconsciously incorporate some stroking yourself into your partnered sex. And if climaxing during partnered sex is important to you, you know, a climax that's self-induced, if you, you know, fuck your partner for a while and then you pull out and you finish by jacking off and coming on him, That counts. A lot of people think that doesn't count. You know, a lot of people think touching myself, stimulating myself to orgasm is something that I should only have to resort to when I'm alone. And if it's partnered sex, 
I shouldn't do that or have to do that. And some people feel that, you know, during partnered sex, the person you're with shouldn't do that or shouldn't have to do that. And if they do that, if they pleasure themselves, if they stroke themselves to orgasm, that they're obviously, you know, the shitty place people's heads go is he's not that attracted to me. If he was attracted to me, really attracted to me, he wouldn't have to resort to stroking himself at the end. But 10 years, a long time, maybe you carved a deep groove in yourself, or maybe, you know, maybe you have death grip syndrome and you need to do something about that. And I've talked about that a lot in the past, or maybe that's just how your dick works. I would be curious to know whether you were circumcised. Some people with circumcisions, some men with circumcisions, lose so many nerve endings that it can be hard for them to climax, you know, getting a blowjob or fucking. They need that, you know, the intensity of the clenched fist uh, to get themselves all the way there. They need a particular kind of rhythm or stroke or roughing up of the head of the penis through the fist to get all the way there and the back of a throat or the inside of an ass doesn't provide that reliably. You know, you say you get off sometimes. Those other times when you're not getting there, you're taking too long, or your partner's done and you want to finish up, can you finish yourself off? If you can, you should unselfconsciously and your partner shouldn't feel in any way like they aren't enough for you or inadequate if you not, I don't want to say finish yourself off if you resort to it. I don't want to use that kind of framing. If you incorporate, if you include what works for you and your dick and always has worked for you and your dick into in partnered sex, then it's a part of partnered sex. It's not a participation trophy. It's not a consolation prize. It's an orgasm. But if the problem, religious upbringing, I had one of those too. If the problem is, you know, grandma and grandpa and Jesus and Mary and all of the saints are watching you and you're past that, but something about your partner watching you trips that wire, vibes with you in a way that is making orgasm harder for you, looking at him, looking at you, well, get a blindfold, get a hood. Don't let him look. Hi, Dan. Just calling for some good old-fashioned breakup support. I am exiting a um, six-plus-year partnership with my boyfriend. We're both married to other people. He and I have had um, some pretty deep challenges over the past six and a half years. Um, a couple already breakups. Basically, I'm an avoidant. He's an anxious attacher, um, specifically with me. And he wanted more. I wanted less. And we ultimately kind of realized that we weren't going to be able to give each other what we needed and we love each other deeply. I am missing him incredibly. And I'm also knowing that this is probably the best decision for both of us, but my heart's aching. His may be too. I, I think it probably is. And I just kind of want to know, like, it's been a while since I had a really big breakup and I, I, I am trying to get back to myself and want to know, I don't know, I guess just how does one do this after so long? It's essentially a divorce in some ways, although we weren't married, but I just would love uh, info about healing the heart and kind of coming one back into oneself after a long, loving, yet complex relationship. 
How's your husband doing? I'm curious. You don't have much to say about your husband and how he's weathered the last six years. You're both dating other people. You're both with other people. You're in an open, ethically non-monogamous marriage. And so nothing's been hidden from your husband. You haven't lied to your husband or deceived your husband. But I detect stress in your voice to be with someone who's an anxious attacher, has anxious attachment style, is clingy. That's what we used to call that, clingy. Particularly when you're avoidant, that can cause some stress for you, the avoidant person with the clingy person. But to be the spouse of someone who's dating someone, who's an anxious attacher, who's clingy and demanding and wants all of that person's time and attention, all of your spouse's time and attention, well, that's not an easy road necessarily either. And I'm just really curious how your husband's doing. Uh, I'm going to assume that you don't mention uh, how your husband's doing because your husband's doing fine, because you haven't neglected your husband, because you have prioritized your marriage. In which case, all the cliches about how to get over uh, shitty, bad, feels like a divorce, breakup, apply. It takes time. The best way to get over somebody is to get under somebody else or back under your husband or, you know, keep getting under your husband. I assume you didn't stop getting under your husband the whole time you were dating your boyfriend. Lean on friends, feel your feelings, eat your feelings a little bit, uh, go to the gym, get out of the house, be active. Don't isolate and empower the people in your life, including your husband, to tell you when to stop wallowing give you that three or four months where you're just allowed to be very dramatic and on the fainting couch and with the smelling salts, woe is meing your way through this breakup. But then at a certain point, your friends, your husband need to know that they're allowed to say to you that you will welcome them saying to you, all right, that's enough. Snap the fuck out of it. Let's go to the movies. Let's go get some drinks. Let's go do something. In your husband's case, let's fuck let's think about something else or let's talk about my stuff too. You know, when you have a breakup, when you're really suffering, you get that license to monopolize the conversation and sort of suck up a lot of emotional energy. After a few weeks, particularly after you get into double digit weeks, after you get to 10, 12 weeks, when you hit that three month mark, you gotta if you aren't already, if you haven't been capable of doing it all along, and perhaps you are capable of doing it and have been doing it, you've got to self-regulate. And if you can't self-regulate and focus on other people's needs, feelings too, those other people in your life need to know that they're allowed to tell you to shift your focus sometimes away from yourself, away from your pain, your problems, and to them. Because that's what friendships, relationships, and marriages, if you're in an open marriage, are about. Not just your needs, but also your partner's needs. And I, I know, I know that, you know, if you're in a successful long-term relationship with your husband, you're in a marriage, you had a successful long-term relationship with your ex-boyfriend, that you have the emotional intelligence to, to know all of the things that I'm telling you. I'm just reinforcing these things. You know what you need to do for others how you need to be there for others and how you have a right to expect others to be there for you, particularly others that you're there for when you need them. Right now you need them. Right now everyone needs to drop everything and dance attendance upon you and your feelings. Then you need to, uh, if you're still wallowing, if you're still gripped 
you know, if the feelings are still just as intense 10, 12 weeks out as they are right now, sometimes then it's an act of will to say, you know what, I'm going to make an executive level, not reptile brain decision here, higher functioning level brain decision here to tamp this shit down and to shift my focus to others. Like your husband. I'm sure he's fine. I'm sure you haven't neglected him. Wondering how he's doing. And if you haven't checked in with him, maybe you should. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. MX Meow tweets, Dan, you're great, but the advice you gave for the dog was terrible. The dog whisperer being sexually active doesn't make him qualified to give out sex advice. You having owned four dogs doesn't make you qualified to give out dog training advice. The caller needs an actual dog trainer. For the record, I've owned three dogs, not four, and it's not like crate training is something I made up. It is a thing dog trainers do, but I will, of course, defer to dog trainers. Are you going to eat that tweets regarding chastity devices and clenching buttholes? There is something called the bulbal cavernous reflex that might be relevant. Pressure on the glands causes sphincter tightening. The bulbal cavernous reflex sounds like the name of a Matt Damon spy thriller translated into Romanian, but it's a real thing used to test for spinal cord injuries, and it has its own fascinating wiki page. And while I don't think the caller who was wearing the male chastity device was accidentally triggering his bulbo cavernous reflex, I'm not a spinal cord specialist, just like I'm not a dog trainer, so who knows? And finally, DJMNNZ81 tweets, if in your guts you know he's nuts as ableist, how about in your anus you know he's bananas? All right, you can't spell bananas without A-N-A-S, but it'll only work as a substitute for in your guts you know they're nuts if you pronounced bananas, bananas, which I fully support and 100% endorse and sincerely hope catches on. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone out there who tweeted or posted to Instagram or TikTok about the Lovecast this week. And thank you especially to at Webb Hill and at Tyler Rose RPG for creating and sharing some wonderful Savage Lovecast bingo cards on Twitter. Everyone should go look those bingo cards up and play along with us at home. And now, listener response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a call for the woman on episode 832 is in a sexless marriage. If you're in a marriage with a husband who still wants to have sex with you, is still in love with you, and you are physically repulsed by him, I, I don't know. Maybe you're you're still you know getting meals together, splitting finances, and, and having good times, and it's just the sex. But it sounds like this is not a companion to marriage. This is a hostage situation, and you need to set him and yourself both free. He wants sex with the person that he's in love with, and you don't ever want to give that to him. And you want sex with other people, and he doesn't want to give that to you. And the best scenario for both of y'all is to get a divorce and have shared custody of your kids and try to move on with your lives. You guys are not a fit, and you're going to make each other miserable. Trust me. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the caller in episode 832 who was getting frustrated with her difficulty orgasming while her partner found it really easy. The caller actually reached out on the Discord server to ask for more advice, and the first thing that I thought to ask was that if she was diagnosed with ADD or ADHD, which she was. Around 40% of people with ADD have some form of sexual dysfunction, and the caller mentioning that she'd had issues before going on her SSRIs strongly pointed to me that it was a difficulty in focusing because of too many distractions or not enough stimulation. 
So if any of the tech savvy at-risk youth identified with the caller, I'd just suggest keeping ADD in mind when talking to a doctor or therapist about treatment as it's been sorely underdiagnosed in women for a long time and many people have found getting treatment for ADD hasn't only helped their sex lives but also their depression or their anxiety or both. Hi, Dan. Um, this is in response to your answer to a caller in episode 832 telling someone that um, they could use cum as lube as long as they let it sit out for 30 minutes and then it would not get them pregnant. And I have to say to the caller, do not do this. My husband is the donor dad for two of our lesbian friends, and his cum traveled from his house in a plastic cup in a car ride across town where it eventually, maybe within an hour, maybe a little longer, found its way to its final destination where it ultimately fertilized an egg. We are all so surprised that it worked at all, and um, it happened the first time they tried. So our friends are now proud parents of a beautiful three-year-old girl. So, caller, do not use cum as lube unless you are okay getting pregnant. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Record your question or your comment using the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Or you can call us at 206-302-2064. Submissions are now open for Hump 2023. If you get your five minutes or less porn film into the festival, you will get a cut of every ticket sold. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets, streaming links to Hump 2022, and all the info you need on submitting your film for Hump 2023. Get your Savage Love cast and Savage Love mugs and t-shirts. Christmas is coming right now at savage.love slash shop. Sack launches tomorrow. Sack launches my monthly Zoom hangout exclusively for Magnum subs, where I will answer Magnum sub cues. I will lay down some A's and where Magnum subs have an opportunity to chat with me directly about your question and maybe give a little advice yourself. Sack launches at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern again tomorrow. Be on the lookout in your email for the link. And if you want to join us, if you're not yet a Magnum sub, become a Magnum sub right now at savage.love. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jessica Pulse on Instagram at Jessica Pulse. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-P-A-F-S. And fuck with the tech-savvy at-risk youth on Twitter at LoveCast, T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for telling me. Uh, but in your anus, you know, they're an ignoramus. <laughs>